This program is made possible by members and donors to the show. In supporting the work we do, only two bucks a month gets you an ad-free version of every episode, while full membership gets you that plus members-only bonus content with extra clips and commentary. You can sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft or visit the contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the ongoing debate about democratic socialism in America, including discussion of tactical strategies on where to set our goals and how to get from here to there. Now, before we get started, I have just a couple of thoughts to take with you. Uh, although the first is purely logistical, I was alerted by a listener, uh, and I heard the message today that an episode, some wires got crossed in a way I've never seen before. I am completely baffled by it. But if you tried to listen to our recent episode from, I believe, about a week and a half ago about climate activism and what actually came through was a rerun about white supremacy that has been fixed. <laughs> so I, I think some listeners got the episode as intended. Others may not have. It's very confusing. I don't understand it. Uh, the bottom line is I fixed it. Check your feed. If you missed the climate episode, definitely go back and listen to it. It's it's especially horrible that that's the episode that got messed up because it's one of the better, more positive, more inspiring episodes I've done in I can hardly remember how long. So So be sure you don't miss that one. But on today's topic, I, I definitely have uh, some thoughts for you. Listen as this episode goes, talking about socialism, uh, as I mentioned in, in the bonus episode, using the Bernie Sanders speech on democratic socialism as sort of a jumping off point. Listen to how different commentators approach the same subject. And there's a bit of a teeter-totter debate throughout this episode about policy goals versus political process. And those things are often, not always, but often at odds with each other. They're the, the more purists who want to go straight for exactly the policy they know is the best. And they're sort of the political strategists who even possibly want the exact same outcome, but have a different idea of how to get there. And it's usually a slower, more meandering pace. And what this is all reminding me of is, uh, and, and some people are going to be familiar with this, I, I know, but there's a quote, not from Abraham Lincoln, as far as I know, but from the film Lincoln that helped crystallize this concept for me better than anything else. It, it was an aha moment in the theater when I heard this paragraph. And so Abraham Lincoln is having a, you know, a, a conversation debate with maybe the most progressive member of Congress. And Lincoln is sort of advising, you know, let, let's be careful. Let's not go ahead too fast. And the most progressive member of Congress is saying, no, we have to do exactly what's right. We know that, that you know, that this is what we need to do. And so Lincoln says this, a compass, I learned when I was surveying, it'll point you true north from where you are standing, but it's got no advice about the swamps and deserts and chasms you'll encounter along the way. If in pursuit of your destination, you plunge ahead heedless of obstacles and achieve nothing more than to sink in a swamp, 
what's the use of knowing true north? Unquote. So when I watched that film, I definitely personally identified with that most progressive member of Congress who was arguing that we needed to do the best, most progressive thing we possibly could. But that paragraph that I just read to you was very clarifying to me, and it didn't change how I felt about the importance of metaphorically pointing true north, finding the the best, most progressive policy and pointing right at it. But it helped me understand that there's more to it than that, and that that could be my place in the world, that that could be my job, but it helped me appreciate that there are other people who have another job, which is to navigate, as was said, the swamps and deserts and chasms along the way. So I, I definitely think that there is a huge amount of value in doing as as the compass does, pointing true north. But I've come to very much more appreciate over the last several years, ever since I, I uh, saw that film, the importance and the benefits of having people who are, are willing to uh, use the compass to know where true north is and then take the time to figure out the best path to actually get there, which may not be as direct as many of us may prefer. So that's what I would like you to be thinking about as you hear today's episode and stick around at the end of the show for more conversation on this topic, different perspectives, and how to achieve political goals. But first, onto the show. Clips today come from Start Making Sense, The Dig, This Is Hell, The Real News, The Vast Majority, The Zero Hour, and The Michael Brooks Show. Bernie gave an important speech on the topic last week, and our John Nichols spoke with him about it before that speech. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, John. Well, of course, Trump declared in his State of the Union speech, quote, America will never become a socialist country, close quote. And of course, that makes us only think maybe it will. Let's listen to a little of Bernie's big speech on socialism last week. In 1944, FDR proposed an economic bill of rights, but he died a year later and was never able to fulfill that vision. Our job 75 years later is to complete what Roosevelt started. And that is why today I am proposing a 21st century economic bill of rights. A bill of rights that establishes once and for all that every American, regardless of his or her income, is entitled to the right to a decent job that pays a living wage. The right to quality health care. The right to a complete education. The right to affordable housing. The right to a clean environment and the right to a secure retirement. Over the course of this election, my campaign has been releasing and will continue to release detailed proposals addressing each of these yet-to-be-realized economic rights. We will also address the attacks that are being launched every day against the civil rights and civil liberties of our people. And let me be absolutely clear. Democratic socialism means to me 
requiring and achieving political and economic freedom in every community in this country. John Nichols, why do you think Bernie begins here with FDR in 1944? Well, it's a proper place of beginning because 1944 was the year in which the Democratic Party began to wrestle with the future. And what I mean by that is that Roosevelt was a a transitional and, and in many ways transformational president. He took a Democratic Party that was in many senses very conservative, that eight years before Roosevelt became president had nominated a Wall Street lawyer as a candidate for president, and that in many senses uh, was less associated with progressive ideals as regards economic and social justice than uh, many people in the Republican Party. And so in 1944, as he prepared to run for his fourth term as president, Franklin Roosevelt sought to define a post-Depression, post-World War II vision. And that vision suggested that in addition to the political rights, which we well understood and that we had fought for, speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, and all the others, that we also needed now to understand economic rights, and that those economic rights had to become a part, at the very least, of the Democratic Party's vision as it went forward politically. Now, Roosevelt was reelected on this message, uh, but he died shortly after his reelection. Truman sought to maintain some elements of it, but not overly successfully. And uh, in many senses, the Democratic Party became uh, better than it had been, but cautious. What Sanders is doing here is twofold. Number one, he is calling the Democratic Party to once again be that bold party, that FDR party, and also suggesting that a democratic socialist vision, now Roosevelt wasn't a democratic socialist, but Roosevelt was someone who borrowed a lot of ideas from democratic socialism and in many ways moved the country uh, in a direction that might reasonably have be imagined to have ended up uh, along a, a European model to say, you know, this is not un-American. This is something that Roosevelt envisioned. This is something that a lot of people have envisioned throughout our history. And this is something that at this point, the Democrats and the broader majority of, Amer- of Americans need to understand and embrace. Well, I'd like to talk about to what extent Bernie's socialist program is different from the rest of the Democratic candidates. For instance, Elizabeth Warren, she calls herself a capitalist, while Bernie, of course, calls himself a socialist. If you look at what they've proposed, instead of what they call themselves, are there significant differences? I think there are some differences, and we can talk about them in a moment. But it's also important to understand, John, that throughout American history, we've had this this sort of circumstance where some people identified as democratic socialists, others identified as progressive capitalists. They often intersected along the way. What Michael Harrington used to say, Michael Harrington being the great democratic socialist organizer of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, uh, was that you really embraced liberalism and progressivism uh, along the way because it, it did, in many cases, lead toward a democratic socialist vision. With that said, are there differences between Sanders and Warren? 
Yes, there are. Uh, Sanders has has taken some significantly bolder stands on foreign policy issues, yes. on international solidarity issues. And it might also be argued that Sanders has a kind of a whole vision, if you will, that he does put under this term democratic socialism. And it goes a bit more aggressively into concepts of universal delivery of services and universal delivery or meeting of needs. It's not to diminish Warren's approach, but simply to suggest that for a very long time, for decades, Bernie Sanders has argued for this kind of whole vision that does use the word socialism. And that's the final thing I would suggest that distinguishes him is this. And it's a sense of how you run against Donald Trump if you are the nominee. And let's let's assert up front that both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren would be outstanding nominees against Donald Trump. What Bernie Sanders says is that if you lean into the term democratic socialism, then when Trump calls you a socialist, you say, yeah, and here's what it means. (laughs) Whereas if you reject the term and if you don't want to use it, then when Trump calls you it, you're sort of put in a more difficult position of debating him. You write that something that's been really good for the recent growth of socialism in the U.S. is also a big problem, which is that it has very much benefited by Fox News and companies just long running constant demonization of even neoliberal liberalism as socialism because it's helped to find socialism as everything to the left of neoliberalism or everything that's not like evil people on Fox news and and so that's been to the benefit of the left but it's pretty squishy too how do you see this sort of undefined relationship between socialism as an anti-capitalist politics and this more general and diffuse anti-neoliberal social democratic politics which we see from politicians that i care a lot for, like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but that are not, I mean, to my eyes, at least, anti-capitalist. Well, I mean, you're kind of, so you, you've kind of brought up three things. One is the Fox News version of socialism, which is just anything, <laughs> anything remotely liberal. Like, <laughs> anything, anything cool. <laughs> yeah. Healthcare, vacations, uh, you All know, <laughs> um, having fun. And, and I think that, their approach has backfired, right? I mean, if you tell people who are struggling to make ends meet that being able to go see a doctor or take a vacation is socialism, socialism is inevitably going to start sounding pretty good, right? So, but that, that, the problem is that that's, that's a shift of consciousness that the left can't take a lot of credit for. Again, this is a moment of opportunity. You know, capitalism is creating conditions of, deep inequity and frustration you know fox news is is saying that even mild welfare reforms or environmental protections are like unbearable forms of socialist oppression yeah and then there's you know and then into that mix all these folks who are basically social democrats have stepped in but they're using the socialist word which i think is ultimately a really great thing and they're they're you know and I, we shouldn't be too jaded because it's like aoc and sanders i mean I wouldn't have ever, even, you know, in 2011, I would never have thought that they would, that figures like um, them would be dominating 
uh, people have, people on the left have become so ungrateful so quickly. It's like just try <laughs> to put yourself in your own shoes, like like four years ago, three years ago. Just think, just like for a second. <laughs> yeah, and it's like you know, you know, so let's let's have some perspective. The, we want to multiply the force that they represent, and we want to deepen the critique and. You know, Bernie Sanders, I mean, and, and there have been some moves that are interesting, like his plan that's sort of inspired by labor in the UK for inclusive ownership, right? Like, how do you actually yeah, start yeah. giving power to workers in the workplace uh, and, and building foundations for a more robust economic democracy, right? So taking democracy out of just the political sphere and into the economic sphere, not just through policies of redistribu- redistribution or a generous welfare state. But actually, through collective ownership. So, I mean, I think there's, there's. I'm someone who's like, we have to take every reform and try to find the path that radicalizes it. And, you know, and basically, like, you know, if you like taxing the rich, you're going to love owning your job. <laughs> you know, how do we, how do we build on this moment? Because, yeah, it's it it's it's certainly more than I expected. At the same time, I, I think it's it's pretty fragile and. I, you know, it's just, it's hard. you like, right. You know, everybody's sharing right now that poll that just came out and said four out of 40% of Americans are socialists and 55% of women aged, whatever it is, 18 to 55, or would prefer socialism to capitalism. But these, these things are kind of, you know, they can be fleeting. They can be something that's just in the air. And how do we, we know that the left only wins when it's actually organized and can actually engage in politics of, of refusal when it can actually, you know, stop the flows of capital when it can strike. I mean, we we might be at historically high levels of strikes for the 21st century, but compared to the New Deal era, it's like nothing. You know, so we have to we have to recognize that these are just indicators that we should organize more and and yeah, we're like approaching like what might add up to the necessary conditions. But nowhere near the sufficient the sufficient outcome <laughs> that we're looking for. You have a um, sobering line in in your new republic piece. In your new republic piece, read any article in the left press aimed at at rousing the socialist faithful, and chances are the final paragraph concludes with some variation of "We have a world to win." But in my more cynical and/or anxious moments, I'm tempted to say the opposite: the left has a world to lose. Or rather, a promising shift in the political winds to squander or blow. The largest challenge ahead is to move socialism from the fringe to the center of political life and turn people into committed democratic socialists. Yeah, and you know, I just to further darken the mood. But you know, I think the thing is, even looking, one of the things that I'm most heartened by is the renewed enthusiasm for labor organizing. And the attention to union politics, but unions are unfortunately, you know, they're not just a vehicle for social change. They're also they they also need to be terrain for democratic struggle because a lot of them are run in a way where, you know, they're they're sort of run in a in a way that's akin to private management structures, right? They're very hierarchical. Workers aren't aren't necessarily empowered. There's an emphasis on kind of superficial media campaigns instead of a more holistic view of organizing. So, I mean, we, there's so much work that needs to be done. And and this is a very, it's a promising moment in that there's a kind of volatility, but 
we also have to get really serious about what what the challenges and what the stakes are. How does the New Deal not define democratic socialism? How did the New Deal fall short, if you will, when it comes to being a democratic socialist experiment or program? Well, the New Deal was fantastic. The New Deal was great. It was an introduction of, you know, social demo- much needed social democracy in the United States. It sprung from the sort of progressive movement. But there's also another detail to keep in mind about the New Deal, which is that it basically imposed a compromise between capital and labor. Now, that's not bad on the face of it. It just so happens that that compromise in that specific historical context led to a regrouping of capitalist forces such that they were actually, over the course of the next you know, 50 years, really hollow out and hamstring unions, the labor movement, working class institutions of all kinds. We are actually proposing that we move, that we implement massive reforms on the scale of the New Deal that have many of the characteristics of the New Deal. But the distinction between socialists and perhaps you would say progressives who are going to be working in tandem to get those reforms accomplished is that socialists see them as basically helping create the conditions for continued struggle of working people against capital. Progressives might see them as you know, rectifying an error and actually stabilizing or humanizing capitalism. That doesn't mean that our programs aren't going to overlap. They're actually going to probably overlap for a very long time because it's going to take a long time in this country to actually see big reforms, big social democratic reforms like the New Deal, or in this case, like the Green New Deal or Medicare for All or tuition-free college, and we'll be working side by side with each other. It's just that socialists have an analysis that says when you institute those reforms, it's extremely important not to let your forces disperse. They actually need to be strong, they need to regroup, and they need to keep pushing, and they need to use the gains that they've won through the reforms to actually build their ranks and push for you know more and more ambitious things. You had an article, Bernie's Running, Thank God. One of the things that I keep hearing on CNN, MSNBC, whatever media I've been reading of late is uh, an analysis that you hear from pundits that there's a fear amongst Democratic Party members that the party might move too far to the left and therefore not be attracting, you know, the Reagan Democrats, the centrists that they're trying to get into the fold. How much of a concern do you have that the Democratic Party might lose the 2020 presidential election because it has gone too far to the left? I don't really share that concern. I actually think that the best person positioned to beat Donald Trump is Bernie Sanders for a very specific reason. Democrats are focusing on the ideology of individuals as though that were set in stone. They're saying we have to appeal to centrists, we have to appeal to moderates, we have to appeal to independents who sometimes vote Republican, as though these things were not subject to change. Bernie Sanders actually has a materialist understanding of politics. It's derived from the socialist tradition. And he says that people can change their ideology when they're presented with a better option that works for them materially. So if you're talking about realignment or reorganization of the party, I actually think that you're going to draw in more voters on the message that Bernie is running on, which is we should unite across lines of difference in order to and have uh, in order to uh, fight back against the people that we are most different from, who are the billionaires. 
And that, I think, is going to resonate with a lot of people, and it's probably going to move a lot of people who don't typically vote to the polls, which is another thing that pundits tend to overlook. Some people don't vote because they don't feel like politics are speaking to them at all. Bernie Sanders is talking about bread and butter issues in a very ambitious way. He's saying, I know that you struggle with uh, health care. We're going to make health care free in this country, and we're going to do that by taxing the rich, and we have to unite in order to make it happen. I know that you struggle with college tuition and with the means to further your education, to position yourself in the economy to actually make a decent living. We're going to unite together against the billionaire class that doesn't want us to have those things. We're going to tax them, and we're going to use the money to make tuition-free public university in the United States. I think that's going to appeal to a wide swath of people that you actually haven't seen appealed to before. And I actually think that it will probably jump across the aisle and pull in a lot of people who often vote Republican who are hearing a message that they never heard before. See, Democrats just have not tried this before, at least not in recent history. So they're, they're kind of the playing field that they're looking at. They're taking for granted that the ideological splits are like set in stone, but they're really not if you have a new formulation and a new way of appealing to people politically. Well, one of the forms that this counterattack seems to be taking, and now I'm looking again at the the presidential race, especially on the side of the Democrats and with Bernie Sanders at the forefront, calling for what he says is democratic socialism. But, of course, many people point out that what he's really calling for is a form of social democracy, in other words, a reform of capitalism, not a complete overthrow of of capitalism. And uh, that raises the question, and this is something that too few, it seems to be, too few people seem to be talking about, is something that, uh, at least back in the 1970s, I would say, people did question social democracy uh, in the sense of saying, well, it has internal contradictions of its own that it has not resolved and cannot resolve. And you could even say that's the reason why it ultimately failed, at least in Europe, uh, and went on a downhill decline, because um, it uh, it couldn't uh, basically deal with the international uh, context of, of, uh, of basically a new liberal financial system uh, where capital is completely deterritorialized and can go wherever it wants, uh, forcing basically the social democracies to adapt to this uh, global condition because otherwise they would face with, be faced with a capital strike or a capital flight. Um, and so I, I'm wondering now, I, if one, on the one hand, there's, there's no real debate, it seems, at least on the left, about, so to speak, reform versus revolution, I guess. <laughs> that is, the, the, the debate about can capitalism be formed in the form of social democracy again, um, or do we need to understand why it, it declined eventually uh, you know, from the 1970s onwards? Was there a logic that went beyond just ideology and that there were, in other words, uh, global financial forces at work in undermining social democracy? What's your response to that, to that train of thought? Well, you're right, of course, that, uh, I mean, the left that I was associated with at the beginning of the 1970s was very critical of the welfare state as it had been constructed in the social democracies in Europe and to the degree that it was welfare even in, in the United States was critical of that because uh, many people saw the welfare state as an organized way uh, to uh, reproduce a class relation, not to challenge a class relation. And, and furthermore, it was also 
structured in such a way as to be anti-women. And so many feminists, I think, felt that the way the welfare state was orchestrated was was, uh, perilous for them. So, yeah, in the, the left in the mid-1970s was highly critical of, uh, of welfare state. Uh, and, but then, of course, the right took power and said, okay, we'll get rid of the welfare state, we'll wipe it all out. And, when, and then that, that led to a certain nostalgia on the left to say, what is it that we wanted to get rid of? But I don't think right now there is really an appetite for a restoration of that kind of welfare state. And I'm very nervous about the democratic uh, field right now, to the degree that it seems to me there is a tendency uh, towards the restoration of uh, a system that was about a reproduction of class uh, relations and, and, and will be so again unless we do something radically different. Now, again, fortunately... It seems to me that there are elements around, particularly feminist socialists and so on, who are going to say, no, we are not going to tolerate the restoration of that kind of welfare state. We, 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 we want uh, to guarantee people a decent life and a decent living space and, and, and decent protections of social security. We want all of those things, but not in a way... Uh, that simply replicates the, the social, social order. Furthermore, uh, we recognize right now that in many parts of the world, social welfare has been privatized through the NGOs. And the, the non-governmental organizations, of course, are working out there dealing with a lot of the social problems. And the state basically says, I don't want anything to do with this. Let the NGOs take, take care of all of the social issues. This is a big transformation because as a recipient, if I'm getting something from the state, I make a claim upon the state and say, I'm a member, I, I, I'm, a, in this, I'm a subject in this state, or I'm a, a citizen of this state, and I have rightful claims, and I want the state to deliver on those claims. When it all goes to the NGOs, in effect, you have to go and beg for charity. Now, this changes the position of a low-income person, begging for charity or putting a legitimate demand upon the state which they believe has some responsibility for guaranteeing their welfare. So I think here too there is something which is saying there will not be a radical revolution uh, in, in social relations without challenging that NGO structure, which is very difficult because there are a lot of progressive people in the NGOs. And you probably will remember uh, that the initial uh, sort of uh, World Social Forum, there were radical elements, but then also the NGOs. And the NGOs were, in the end, kind of doing a separate game from the popular movements. So I think that there's, there, there are these issues which the left has not grappled with and which need, they need to grapple with if we are not to end up with a restoration of a kind of a, uh, a soft version of, or a, a more sort of um, efficient version uh, of the social democracy, which, which was uh, sort of hanging around us in the sort of early 1970s.
So, Seth, was the New Deal socialist? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, the reason I decided to write the, this article it was because I was struck by the way that a lot of liberal pundits, Democratic Party type people were reacting to Bernie Sanders' socialism speech with, uh, with a line that reminded me, um, kind of surreally, uh, of the most ultra left people that you encounter on like internet message boards where, you know, it's like, that's not really socialism, man. And so while there's obviously a certain, there's a like, grain of truth in that, the, you know, first of all, FDR did not, ne never identified as a socialist, uh, nor did he or his administration ever lay out a plan or, a, or an ambition to uh, collectivize the means of production. But at the same time, I thought that these uh, pundits were going a little bit far, too far, because at the time... Um, the New Deal was seen by both socialists and by the enemies of socialism as, uh, as, as a, a form of, I guess you could say, kind of socialism in government. And when you think about it, um, you know, there's a kind of, there's obviously a longstanding tension between the idea of being a socialist, which involves usually the concept of kind of a, a, a really convulsive transformation of the economy and society with being an elected leader uh, who has to govern according to the rules and the laws and the institutions of your country, uh, there's not, you know, uh, outside of, a, of an actually revolutionary situation, you're rarely going to get the opportunity as a socialist to be elected and then go for it and then just, you know, uh, socialize all of the, uh, the, whole, the whole economy. So in the meantime, what do you do? Um, and that was actually a question that had never had an answer before, uh, before Roosevelt's election. I guess you could maybe, around the same time uh, as he was elected, uh, there was a socialist uh, government, or at least a coalition government in Sweden, and then you had uh, Bloom's government in France. But really, there was there was there were no examples of what socialism in in government would would look like. Uh, and yet Roosevelt, I guess, in an irony of history, a guy who was not a socialist, ended up. Um, governing in a way that socialists around the world looked at as kind of what they would do if they found themselves in this non-revolutionary but governing situation. Uh, and it was also, of course, the right-wing uh, and centrist enemies of socialism who said over and over again that, that what FDR was doing looked much more like the, the socialist platform than it looked like the actual Democratic Party platform. So when these pundits kind of laugh at the idea that that Bernie Sanders would get up and say, my vision of democratic socialism, if you want to understand what that is, look at the New Deal. Uh, on the one hand, you can credit them with pointing out that he is not painting a vision of the future that goes beyond the kind of governing socialism of, of New Deal type uh, policy. That's true. But on the other hand, what he's doing is essentially pointing to uh, one of the central models of uh, w w uh, historical examples of a model of socialist style governance. And so there's really nothing ludicrous or fantastic about it. I feel like both in this speech that he gave about democratic socialism, socialism as well as the one that he gave in the last election at Georgetown, they were billed as this kind of People expected to get this end-all, be-all definition from Bernie Sanders about what democratic socialism meant. But instead of giving that definition, he often points to either 
programs and policies like the New Deal or just ideas about certain goods being rights for people like healthcare or like any number of things. He, he points to these things and he says, this is what I mean by democratic socialism. He doesn't give the totality of what the democratic socialism socialist division means, but he points to things that are sort of leading in that direction, right? That, that are, you know, decommodified goods or, uh, policies that spread, you know, that, that, that spread the vast amount of wealth in America, around uh and provided all kinds of infrastructure and workers rights and all kinds of other things like the new deal so he sort of is pointing in the direction of democratic socialism instead of giving the complete definition of it yeah and i i think you know you can also credit him with making some noises about uh, the idea of democracy democracy extending the principle of democracy to the economy he's he's had comments like that which certainly do point in the direction of something beyond just decommodification beyond just, you know, uh, providing guarantees of certain goods that people have rights to. But that in itself, I mean, decommodification, democracy at work, um, these, uh, you know, these are, all, these are all like key elements of, of what socialism has always meant. You know, uh, when at the very beginning uh, of socialism, it, uh, the, the earliest models of socialism that people talked about were uh, would sound kind of remarkably modest uh, or moderate to us today. You know, the, in the 1830s, 1840s, or the first actual socialist mass movement in France, um, it was kind of vague what they meant by it, but what they generally meant by it was some sort of situation where, like, the government would give people loans to start cooperatives. Uh, and that was part of a program of what was what was at the time a, revol- a literally revolutionary movement with barricades and all the rest of it. Um, and the, the meanings of socialism have always been in flux and have changed depending on the circumstances. The economy and society and politics changes over time, and so do definitions of socialism. Um, I think that you know, in in evaluating how we should look at Bernie Sanders' relationship with the concept of socialism. Um, we should remember that uh, that socialism, in properly understood, has in its the people who've really understood how how politics works, how mass movements work, um, have especially Marx and Engels. They always said that um, it is much more important to uh, to have a movement and a, a real movement of workers with a with an understanding that they are trying to um, advance their interests. Uh, than it is to have a perfectly doctrinally correct program. When, you know, when Engels talked about American politics in the late 19th century, he said he much preferred the Knights of Labor, uh, or the quote-unquote agrarian reformers to the doctrinally Marxist correct socialist labor party at the time, which was, you know, the hyper, uh, orthodox Marxists, uh, who sounded kind of like Marxist robots when they talked. Um, he much preferred the sort of messy, uh, ideologically incoherent knights of labor to them uh, because they actually represented a, a real movement of workers uh, advancing towards some kind of egalitarian vision in opposition to the established order. And actually were people who were wrestling with the real contradictions that one faces when one goes up against the established order, right? Like they were trying to figure out a way – forward and the difficulties they were facing were the result of them actually being in the arena of real life political action. 
Yeah, it's very easy to sit, you know, on the internet, presumably, in front of your computer and type away at socialism, you know, and you can give the absolutely correct definition. But that's that what we do every day at jackrunmag.com. We try to do it. Yeah. Um, a lot of typing. We, we type socialism. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but that actually, you know, it's, it's not, it's not a very Marxist approach to socialism. So, uh, I mean, that really resembles, you know, the, the, Cook blueprints, you know, for the future. Cook shop recipes for the cook shop of the future that Marx uh, had a lot of contempt for. Um, so yeah, you know, you you wrestle with the you you you're never at the place that you want to be. You're at the place that you are, um, and you have to start with the realities that you're grappling with at the time. I think that's what. If you were to in two thousand go back to two thousand fifteen or two thousand fourteen or whatever, when when the American left was at such a low point, uh, and you were to say, how in the world? Would you try to revive socialist politics starting from here? Uh, I think that the kinds of, um, in the absence of a, ma- of a real mass movement, I think that the, the kind of approach that Bernie Sanders took would be probably the, the best, the least bad solution, uh, for figuring out how to, how to move forward. I, I think most people would probably agree with that. He, Bernie Sanders, I guess, could have run for president and said, I am running on a platform of, Collective ownership of all the means of production and, you know, you can have a planned economy or whatever else. Um, but what would really be the point of that? Would that, to what extent would that really be contributing to the advance of socialist politics? You could have a debate. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there are some people who would try to make the argument that that would have been a better approach than what Bernie Sanders ended up doing. But I think that you could make a really much better argument that this is what you would do if you were trying actually to advance a, a socialist movement you know, uh, and do your best in that, in that vein. I will only support Bernie Sanders' campaign if he refuse, if he refers to the United States exclusively as the great Satan. Nothing less I, than that will I accept. Well, you're a moderate because <laughs> I insist on America with three K's <laughs> and he has to pronounce each K. <laughs> to recreate the New Deal. Virtually most of his speeches about democratic socialism either refer to Franklin Roosevelt or they refer to the New Deal explicitly, and if not, well, then implicitly. He wants the government to play a much larger role, to create what I call a capitalism with a human face, higher minimum wage, better support of the government for old people, for health care for everybody, for subsidized education made available publicly, and so on. These are what I would call reforms. They are making capitalism better, less unequal, less harsh, and all of that. And of course, I support all of that. But I keep using the word capitalism because of what Bernie's ideas do not directly challenge. And that is an economic system that has divided the productive enterprises, the stores, the factories, the offices, into a group of two kinds of people. Those who make the rules, enforce the rules, 
hire, fire, have all the power and most of the wealth. Those we call the major shareholders or the board of directors or the CEO. We all know who those folks are. They're a tiny minority of all of us involved in producing goods and services and distributing them. But they're the ones who have call the shots. And then there's the other group. They're not the employers. They're the employees. That's most of us. The vast majority. But when we go to work, we do what the minority tells us. They tell us where to sit or stand, what machine to use or not use, how to do the work we're supposed to do, when to do it, where to do it. And when we're done, they tell us to go home and we must leave behind what our brains and muscles enabled to be produced. We're to go home, have a pizza and a beer and come back the next day and do it all again. The employers, the minority, get the fruits of our work, all of it. They pay us a small portion and they keep the rest as their profits. And they decide how to use them. And for example, in the last 40 years, they've decided to use a real big chunk of them to give the top executives wildly inflated salaries and pay packages to give the major shareholders wonderful distributions of dividends and capital gains. And so the rich have gotten much richer, surprise, surprise, because they're in the position to do it, just as you and I would likely do it if we were in those positions. The solution, therefore, for me is not to struggle for a higher minimum wage or even Elizabeth Warren's tax on wealth. The solution is to change the way we organize the production and distribution of the goods and services upon which our lives depend. We don't need to have a tiny minority that runs the enterprise. We never did. You know, the human race got rid of kings. They thought they were the people to run the whole society. We were all their subjects. They told us what to do, when to fight a war, when to not fight a war, and we had to bend down and bear the burden of them sitting on top of us. We eventually got rid of the kings in the political realm. Well, then why, the socialist always asks, why do we leave the kings in the workroom? Why do we leave the kings at the workplace? Why do we allow, allow a tiny minority to make all the decisions in economics when we have expressly forbidden that in politics. We elect the mayor who makes decisions that impact us, but we do not elect the boss who makes even more important decisions on where we work, including the decision to deprive us of a job, deprive us of our income, throw our entire family into crisis, make us lose our home, force us to relocate elsewhere, this is not a distribution of power that bears any relationship to democracy. And for me, therefore, the solution to the problems of inequality, instability, we need system change. We need to reorganize businesses so that democracy exists inside the workplace rather than being excluded from it 
which it has for the entire history of the United States. And when I say that, when I talk about system change like that, I'm talking about that as the core focal demand of a socialist movement. It's not enough to do the reforms that Bernie wants. And let me make one final point about it. When Bernie points to the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt, I think that's very smart and very appropriate. But here's what I would say. In the New Deal, Franklin Roosevelt, the CIO, all that happened back then, they went for reforms. They created Social Security. They created unemployment compensation. They created the first minimum wage and so on. But because they didn't change the system, because they left in place the minority of the business owners and CEOs with all the power and all the money, the last 40 years can be described in America as the rolling back of the New Deal, the undoing of the New Deal. And you know who undid it? Who took away the Social Security benefits so that no one can live on them anymore? Who undid the the minimum wage by allowing prices to rise faster than that wage did, et cetera, et cetera. It was the capitalist businesses that took the lead in funding and promoting the undoing of the New Deal. I don't want to do that again. To to Bernie, I say, your ideas are good, but we've been there and we've done that. We now have to make the more basic changes without which the reforms you're after, Bernie, even if you get them, will remain deeply insecure and likely be rolled back if and because you haven't made the more fundamental changes that I think socialism points to. You describe your politics today as, quote, a radicalism that is aware of the difficulty of revolutionary change, and at the same time of how profound the gains of reform can be. Do reforms do more than reinforce an inherently unfair system? Does reforming capitalism strengthen something that should be abandoned? Yes, I I think it absolutely uh, uh, helps working people, not only today, but what reforming capitalism does is it opens up the horizon for us to ask more and more radical things in the future. So Leninists, for example, had a criticism of social democracy. And they said, well, listen, some of these reforms of constructing this welfare state will be good in the short term. We're not denying that. But in the long run, what it'll do is make people wedded to their bosses. It'll make them wedded to their nation state. It'll make them content and kind of quiescent. Golden change for a slave. In fact, it did the opposite in practice. Workers in Sweden throughout the 40s and 50s and and early 60s were given reform after reform. They were living by the late 60s in probably the most generous society ever constructed, the most egalitarian society ever constructed within capitalism. They had huge spheres of life that were decommodified, taken out of the market. They had high wages. They had high levels of unionization. They had job security. They had all these wonderful things. And guess what they did? In 1967 and 1968, they went on strike, not just 
for better wages and conditions. They went on strike for industrial democracy. In other words, they were questioning the right of management to manage. They were questioning why workers were in the subordinate positions and these big enterprises, they contributed all the, the labor, both mental and physical, too. By the 1970s, Swedish Social Democrats were calling for a socialization of production. So in other words, taking these large Swedish firms and over time having workers buy up shares in them to the point that within 20 years or so, every large enterprise in Sweden would have been collectively owned by, by workers. So in other words, social democracy allowed people to feel the confidence and it built the class power that allowed people to put more radical things on the agenda. If we today in the United States cannot get a movement together, cannot build a chronic working class power to get something like Medicare for all, how in the world are we going to get something like the worker ownership of the means of production to the old Marxist you know, demand? To me, if you can't get one, you can't get the other. And moreover, there are certain reforms, like, for example, getting full employment that increases the capacity of people to fight for more. So if you're unemployed, and you're in a condition of 20, 25% unemployment, you're going to be a lot less likely to strike or to seek collective action as a solution to your problem than if you're um, in an environment of, of near full employment. So if your boss wants you to, to accept lower wages or worse bargains, but you're in a tight labor market, they'll say, F off, I'm going to fight back. I'm going to go on strike. But collective action is often not viable in the United States because it's so difficult to fight back, because our unions are so weak, because often we're in communities with high unemployment, with very little social rights, and so on. So I think, I think reforms are, are steps towards more, more radical transformations, and they're not counterposed uh, roads. This was an incredibly important speech, and it was a dialectical one. His speech was class conscious. He juxtaposed an oligarchy of oligarchy versus the people and argued that the working class struggling for economic, racial, gender, and gay liberation would bring us into the future and defeat the sort of prime threats of today, which are unfettered capitalism and the emergent threat of authoritarianism that arises in that capitalist context. He wisely tied his perspective to the FDR tradition. And again, we're seeing this similar dynamic play out a lot in Sanders' campaign. On one hand, there's people that are wanting to pivot to a candidate like Warren that does not have the systemic understanding that Sanders brings to it and is focusing on sort of technocratic in some cases, very positive, but technocratic, non-systemic solutions. And then they're sort of undervaluing Sanders' systems argument and actual diagnosis of the crisis we're in that sets him apart from the other candidates. Then there's the sort of let's play revolutionaries on Twitter that are upset that instead of reference that, you know, instead of FDR, Bernie should have been like, you know, foregrounding Fidel Castro in this speech. Okay. The reality is, is that he is anchoring a profoundly important and unprecedented in modern politics argument for economic rights as the center of politics 
by wisely linking it to a profoundly important tradition in democratic politics, whether you like it or not. That's the reality. Bernie's commitment to the socialist tradition and socialist movement is central to the reason that he is able to articulate the stakes and the central battle lines of today's politics. Here he is breaking it down with Chris Hayes. Well, let me ask you this, though. So so one of the, the sort of touchstone points in the speech is about FDR and the New Deal and, and the Economic Bill of Rights. And again, I, I would agree with you that well, his critics called him a socialist and in by today's terms, you would be called socialist. But FDR didn't call himself a socialist. The socialist of the time said that he was peddling pale pink pills and he was basically a sellout capitalist. He probably did that for a reason, right? I mean, that was a political judgment by FDR about his own efficacy. Why does the word matter more than the agenda? Because it is imperative for people to understand, look, a lot of people are going to say a lot of good things. But for two reasons, I think the word democratic socialism is relevant. Because if you are serious about, A, defeating Trump's authoritarianism, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, is an international phenomenon, you have to do what Roosevelt did and say, you know what, I am taking on the ruling class And you remember, I mentioned this yesterday, and these people hate me and I welcome their hatred. In other words, you cannot go forward unless we are prepared to take on incredibly powerful special interests. There is no shortcut uh, around that. And second of all, when I use the word democratic socialism, what I mean is not that, hey, we've got to improve the healthcare system. I mean that economic rights are human rights. People are entitled to health care, to education, to a clean environment, to retirement security, to decent housing. This is not just some abstract idea. Freedom of speech is what America is about. I believe that economic rights must also be about uh, what uh, America is about. So it's not just that Sanders has the right policies, and he absolutely does, and the sort of myth of him not offering specifics is fading on a daily basis as he outlines, as an example, aggressive plans on education, which are formulated in part by teachers. God forbid they be involved in the formulation of major national priorities with with regards to education. It's that by understanding the stakes and understanding that the central conflict is about class difference in politics, it's not about some kind of intellectual argument. The reason that Amazon runs our economy, the reason that there's skyrocketing inequality, the reason that people don't have health care, the reason that foreign policy is run the way it is run is not because people haven't thought of clever solutions and it's not because people are waiting to be persuaded to give up their power, privilege and access. It's because, in fact, of that raw power disparity. So what Bernie is doing is expanding the playing field and consciousness of people, which is going to be fundamentally necessary to implement even a more modest program than the one he's proposing. The job of the left should be articulating how we are going to use the momentum behind his presidential run and the potential for the presidency to continue this project. I want to talk about Marx's relationship to the French Workers' Party program of 1880. You know, we talk about Marx's critique of the Gotha program as his very perceptive critique of the limits of social democracy if you don't have large monopolies decommodified. But conversely, this is his uh, thoughts on the French Workers' Party program of 1880 and where he famously stated, I'm not a Marxist. And we'll scroll down. We have this on screen. Let's scroll down to the... uh, 
if we have it, the uh, economic rights section that Marx had. And I'll read, I'll read along with it. Basically, Marx advocated a program that included gender pay equity, reductions in the work week, universal education, state aid for elderly and disabled people, <clears throat> among other demands. French party leader Jules Ged, who helped write the program, later pushed for removing removal, claiming that the removing the minimum section would free the proletariat of its last reformist illusions. Marx responded by saying that Ged was not a radical but a revolutionary phrasemonger and famously wrote to Engels that this is that if this is Marxism, I'm not a Marxist. In other words, this founder of a pretty radical tradition and a very shrewd understanding of how to look at the world and how to look at capitalism was someone who in a very pressured context was able to see that profoundly important advancements in terms of wages, in terms of labor protections, in terms of time, and in terms of an expansion of rights was the foundation upon which new rights were created, new expectations were created, and new demands were asserted. That's what Bernie Sanders is doing in our politics in a completely unprecedented way in modern politics at least. That's why we need to support his campaign fully and unequivocally, recognize the profound opportunity that it presents if you care about things like every single human being having healthcare, like the serious response to wealth concentration in this country, and then start taking the next steps to put into play things like nationalizing and decommodifying the natural resources and oil industries. I mean, these are very comparable, obvious places of why on earth should those be privately absorbed from the public commons to be exploited and cause enormous societal damage? We can be innovating ideas of how markets can work in a social context, what needs to be decommodified, and where we can get sort of more visionary in our ideas and demands. But if you don't see that Sanders' campaign is the absolutely unique cond conduit for that, you either probably don't actually share a systemic understanding of politics and you don't have the strategic capacity to reform, to even implement a reform program, or conversely, you're doing some cosplay bullshit that has nothing to do with what we actually need to achieve for real, actual human beings. And that was the significance of Bernie's speech. I just want to add really briefly with this quote. This is from an excellent piece that ran in Jacobin by Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Bernie Sanders' democratic socialism speech was a landmark. The white supremacists that head the Republican Party want us all to believe that the biggest problems in this country are not their grotesque policies that steal the wealth of the many and redirect it to the few. Instead, they point the finger at Mexicans, Muslims, and the quote-unquote blacks. Sanders did not resort to flowery homilies that claim that this weaponized racism isn't quote-unquote us or it is somehow outside of the norms of the American politics or other tribe. Instead, he argued that the wealthy's use of racism to destroy the living standards of otherwise ordinary workers by constantly fraying the mutuality that otherwise bind us together, quoting Dr. King.
We've just heard clips today from Start Making Sense, speaking with John Nichols about the benefits of Bernie reviving FDR's policies and about the differences between Bernie and Warren. The Dig spoke with Astra Taylor about how the relentless demonization of anything to the left of neoliberalism as socialism by the likes of Fox News has actually helped create the opportunity we now have. This is Hell talked with Megan Day about how New Deal-style policies should only be seen as a good place to start and something to be built on, as well as how the electoral politics against Trump may very well play in Bernie's favor more than a traditional Democrat. The Real News spoke with David Harvey about the limits of social democracy and the welfare state, and the hopes that we won't just be reviving the same old system with the same old problems again. The vast majority had a conversation with Seth Ackerman about debating real socialism and the benefits of not demanding purity in our politicians. The Zero Hour had on Professor Richard Wolff, who warned that mere reforms to our economic system that do not challenge the underlying structure of the employer-employee relationship may only be setting us up for another cycle of inevitable rollbacks by the powerful business interests who led the way on rolling back much of the New Deal. This is Hell posed just about that exact question to Baskar Sankara, who suggested that the opposite can be true as long as enough reforms are implemented over a long enough period. And finally, we just heard Michael Brooks' take on Bernie's speech, Bernie's differences with Warren, and the importance of taking on powerful interests who seek to divide us. Members this week will hear some additional material on, you guessed it, socialism, more specifically probably some analysis of the mainstream media reaction to Bernie's speech, and some more thoughts on getting from here to there, including the role of promoting work co-ops. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Jesse from Boston. Just finished listening to the climate change episode. And um, I think it's insane whenever I hear people talking about climate change and ignoring the impact of capitalism. I think the number one cause of climate change and the number one target for uh, affecting actual reform in regards to the environment and our climate would be capitalism because these massive corporations essentially write legislature fossil fuel companies have an interest in immediate financial gain and uh, money just gets funneled into the military which is probably the worst polluter out there so that the United States Army can go exploit natural resources in other countries and make profit off of it here. I don't have anything uh, hopeful or positive to say about that, but it's my two cents.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, hearkening back to uh, the beginning of the show, I was talking about the various perspectives we would be hearing, the sort of teeter-totter debate, and so now that you've heard it, you know, it's interesting if you were to just listen to the nation, like the first clip we heard, you would think that Bernie was right on track. He was doing exactly the right thing. He's reviving the legacy of FDR and FDR was incredibly popular and successful. And many of his policies have stood the test of time. But if you were to just listen to the hardcore socialists, then you would think, well, you know, Bernie's not even a socialist. He's weak sauce. He's not getting to the core of the problem. He's, you know, just tinkering around the edges. And then if you listen to people sort of getting past the political goals or the policy goals who start talking about the strategy, the political strategy of how to get from here to there, well, then you start getting a different range of responses about how reforms only help entrench the underlying status quo, sort of makes people go to sleep and make make them think that things are okay because capitalism has a, a nice face, a human face now. Or you could go the other way and say that reforms actually help habituate people into demanding ever more from the state until they get to the point where they inevitably start to question the status quo and the, and the underlying structures and demand underlying change. So all of this, what it reminds me of is my favorite piece of parenting advice, which sounds like a non sequitur, but I'll explain. So years ago, I, I just looked up this book. It's uh, I think it came out in 2012. So that's probably about the time that I uh, heard an interview with the author of this book titled how not to kill your baby. It's a parenting advice book, comedy book. As a side note, I have always thought that it should be how to not kill your baby rather than what it is, which is how not to kill your baby, which sort of implies like there are good ways and bad ways to kill your baby. So let me just demonstrate the ones you really don't want to use. You know, it's like if you wrote a book, how not to throw a dinner party, you wouldn't come away with the impression that dinner parties are absolutely terrible and you shouldn't do it. You would think like, okay, there are good and bad ways, and this is going to tell you uh, the problems to avoid. So anyway, that that's a side note. I've always uh, had a quibble with the title. But anyway, the, the author of this book, who was pretty funny in, in the interview, if I recall, had one piece of, of pretty genuine parenting advice where, where he got serious for, for a moment. And he said, if I had one piece of parenting advice, it would be that if you are going to read more than zero parenting books, make sure you read more than one, probably three, four, half a dozen. Do not just read one parenting book because if you do, it is a very natural human tendency to think that the one thing we've heard, the one thing we're aware of, the one thing we've had explained to us is correct and is the 
best and most right version of any given idea. And that is simply not true. It is this problem in our human psychology. I'm sure Nick from California will call in and let me know what that psychological phenomenon is called. It might be anchoring, but anchoring refers to something else usually. But anyway, it's, it's when you latch onto the first thing you hear and then defend it against new information. It's, you know, when you think of it in terms of politics or parenting advice, you should know logically that that's ridiculous, but it happens. So it just gets me thinking about this whole debate and how, you know, if you'd only listened to one source or another, you would come away with a completely different perspective. Either Bernie is the best and he's doing the best possible thing there is to do, or Bernie is like, "Eh, yeah, nice try, but he's not going to do it, so I'm not even excited. Like, you could come away with completely different perspectives. And so I was happy that in this episode, and, uh, you know, hopefully on other topics too, that I I could, could sort of fulfill that advice. If you're, if you're going to listen to one thing, listen to a lot of things. Don't just get one perspective, get a lot. Cause that's when you can actually weigh different perspectives against each other and see how one might be better or more grounded or more suitable to your needs than another. And, and are you ready for the, the I'm about to make a turn here. So given that I was able to do that in, in today's show, If you appreciate that that's the sort of service this show provides, I just want to say a little bit more pointedly than usual that uh, I would really appreciate it if you would sign up as a member on Patreon to help support the work of this show. Uh, To be quite uh, frank and honest, the uh, not only listenership numbers, but financial numbers of the show have been going in the wrong way uh, recently, which is disconcerting. I think we are suffering from a combination of factors, uh, that being political fatigue. People have been dropping like flies ever since Trump was elected and they had to redirect their, uh, their time or their money to their therapy sessions instead of to their favorite political podcasts. And then you combine that with an enormous influx, and maybe you're very well aware of this, an enormous influx of competing political podcasts and YouTube shows and all of that. And so, you know, very naturally, some people are going to find other shows that they like more than this one. Uh, But you, if you're hearing my voice, apparently you have not fully succumbed to political fatigue and you still like this show enough to listen to it. And so I would ask if it is a a possibility for you to contribute to the show, uh, I would say that now would be a really, really good time to do it. It's not just that there's been a little bit of attrition with listeners and that very naturally then the finances begin to suffer along with listenership numbers, but the the costs of the show itself have gone up. As I said, there's been an explosion of competing uh, political podcasts and YouTube shows, and it just so happens that it's my job to help curate all of that. So the more shows there are, the more work there is to be done. So at the very same time that we have these structural forces sort of working against us in terms of listenership and finances, our workload has gone up because there are so many good shows out there who are totally deserving of my attention and to be 
presented on the show and, and highlighted when they have good things to say. And so it's actually required the hiring of a production assistant to help make that work possible, to keep the show going at a pace that I am happy with twice a week and at a quality level I am happy with. You know, I, I could I could slack off. I could do a lot less. <laughs> the, the show could be not as good, but I don't think any of us would be happy with that. So hopefully this explains how we're in a bit of a perfect storm considering systemic forces having to do with the audience, systemic forces having to do with the workload and the expenses that go along with it. So one last time, if you can support the show, the URL to go to is patreon.com slash best of left. And of course, that link is in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. So now, as always, uh, keep the comments coming in on any topic you like, the topic of today's show, uh, how you feel about the pragmatism versus idealism of socialism or what version of socialism you would like to see brought about. Maybe none at all. Uh, I would love to hear from anyone who has any thoughts on today's episode, any element of it, or anything else at all. Uh, the number to dial 202-999-3991. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening and to those who already support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size. That is absolutely no kidding how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Best of the Left left.com. Left.